Uh, morning, everyone. It's lovely to have the opportunity to start this series that Alyssa's been talking about, this series called Engage and Encounter. Um, and as I start that, I think it's fair to say that we have more information at our fingertips than any other generation ever in history. Uh, some say, or some claim, essentially, that human knowledge doubles about every 12 hours, which is quite remarkable, isn't it? Something that used to take thousands of years now doubles every 12 hours. It's the idea that if you include everything that could be known, thanks to the invention of the internet, if you include everything there is to be known, that amount of information doubles between the time that we have breakfast and the time that we have dinner every single day. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? And incredibly overwhelming all at the same time. Uh, Nicholas Carr, in his book, I've got the quote up there, his book is called The Shallows, How the Internet is Changing the Way that We Read, Think and Remember. Uh, he laments on, on, on the way that this explosion of information has had a detrimental impact on our ability to read. And he says this about his own ability to read. Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words... Now I skip along the surface like a guy in a jet ski. It's a relatable analogy, isn't it? And I just wonder what that means for us as people of faith. What it means for us in the way that we engage or perhaps disengage with the biblical story, if that's the culture that we live in. And so we start this series this morning called Engage and Encounter because what we want to do over a number of weeks is explore how, how we actually engage with the biblical story in all of its complexity of language and form and genre. This book that's actually made up of 66 different books from some 40 different authors written over 1,600 different years that contains a mixture of narrative and history and myth and poetry and songs and prayers and prophecy, genealogies, legal statutes, international treaties, personal correspondence, and lots more. It's a complex book. So how do we engage with this complex book in all of its difference? But not just that, not just how do we engage with it at an intellectual level, we really want to ask ourselves that question of how do we encounter Jesus across the whole of this story? And so we're going to do that over a number of weeks. And I've got the opportunity to open up our series. And I'm going to focus on Old Testament narrative this morning. But I do want to say in a minute a few general things which will hopefully shape what we talk about across the whole of the series. But Old Testament narrative is our focus this morning. And a fun little fact for our next church quiz night, and that is that 40% of the Old Testament is actually narrative. It's story. Uh, and three quarters of our Bible is, is the Old Testament. And so the most likely type of literature that you will encounter when you open up your Bible is actually Old Testament narrative. There's lots of it in there. So we need to work out how we engage with it well. And traditionally, of course, the sanitised stories of the Old Testament have been a favourite, haven't they, for kids' Bibles and Sunday school. If you grew up in the church, you grew up with stories from the Old Testament, stories like Noah and the Ark, stories like the escape from Egypt in the Exodus, Joseph in his technicolour coat, David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den. These stories have been favourites in the church for generations. But funnily enough, not everyone looks at those stories with such a rosy view. 
Uh, a number of years ago, a very famous atheist, Richard Dawkins, wrote this in his book, The God Delusion. It's a fairly confronting quote that's about to come up next. <laughs> the anticipation. He didn't write that. He writes... I'll, I'll just tell you what he wrote. He, he writes, the God of the Old Testament, there it is, is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Whew, that's hard work, that is it. But wow, like what a quote. Tell us what you really think. You don't have to even have to understand all of those words. I don't think I do. You don't have to understand all of those words to know that Dawkins is not a big fan of the God of the Old Testament. That might be an understatement. But where's that perception drawn from? His perception is drawn from engaging in what we would classify as a selective reading of Old Testament narrative. Now, you'll be pleased to know that I don't agree with Dawkins as much as that quote is on the screen. I don't agree with him at all. But he does prove the point that if we don't engage carefully with the stories that we find in the Old Testament, we can not only come away with a warped view of God himself like Dawkins, we can actually come away with a misguided view of ourselves and our place in God's story. Because it's probably also no surprise that if you go back into history you'll find that a misguided view of Scripture, which leads to a misguided view of us and our place in the world, has been used to justify violence and slavery and persecution, racism and plenty of other evil things in our world. We must learn how to use the Bible well and responsibly, faithfully. But I think the other thing that a quote like that recognises is that there are lots of tricky parts of the Old Testament, aren't there? There are lots of difficult parts to understand that we need to try and wrestle with. And I don't have time to go through all of them now. Uh, But 2 Kings 2 is a classic for me. Uh, There's a group of boys who have a crack at Elisha because he's bald. And so he calls down a curse on them. And suddenly then two bears come out of the woods and maul 42 kids to death. What do you do with that story? It's in there. Or in Ezekiel 4, I find this one classic as well. Now, there is obviously lots of context behind this. But in Ezekiel 4, God asks Ezekiel to lie on his left side for 390 days and then roll over and lie on his right side for 40 days, during which time he's only only able to eat bread that's baked over a fire of excrement. Isn't that a lovely story? (laughs) And you ask yourself, there is a specific reason for that. Well, be asking yourself, what is that story doing in there? But they're not all just weird and funny as well. There's some horrifying things in the Old Testament. If you think back to Genesis chapter 19, when the men of Sodom demand to have sex with two angels that have come to visit Lot. Lot says no, of course, but then he offers up his two daughters instead. Like a horrifying story. What are we supposed to do with that? There are many tricky challenging, difficult to understand stories in the Old Testament. And it is important to say as we get stuck into this, in any part of the Bible, we just can't ignore those things. We can't take them out. They're there. We can't ignore them. Otherwise, we're just as bad as Dawkins, really, selectively choosing the stories that suit our purposes. 
But again, it underscores the idea that we need to be really careful about the way that we read and understand and apply those stories. So with that in mind, if you'll bear with me for a couple of minutes, I just want to give us six kind of guiding principles, if you like, for the way that we start engaging with the Bible. Now, there's six things that I'm going to bring up on the screen in a second are not exclusive to Old Testament narrative, although they apply, but hopefully they provide some kind of context for lots of things that we're going to talk about over these next few weeks. And the first one is this, that the Bible is a book. And if it's a book, we must learn how to read it, right? And it seems pretty simple, but actually the Bible is more than just a book. It's a library of books. As I mentioned earlier, it's made up of lots of different literature, lots of different genres, and we need to understand that. We don't read poetry in the same way that we read history, do we? That would be ridiculous. We don't read legal documents the way that we would read a personal letter to someone. That seems silly. And so we need to do the same thing with the Bible. We need to read it like a book that's made up of lots of different genre and learn how to read it well. And really, this is the idea that we need to read the Bible within its literary context and not just genre. Do a little bit of exploration. When we pick up the Bible, we actually need to read it within the context of what comes before it and what comes after it. Sometimes a little bit of work actually illuminates the meaning of a message so much more. I don't want to steal other people's thunder, but we think of classics like Philippians 4.13. This was always a favourite of mine when I was growing up as a sports person. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You know, it's one of those things I used to quote before running out onto the footy field, thinking that I could take massive screamers and kick 10 goals because it was Christ that worked through me. That's not what that verse is about at all. We only have to have a look at the verses around us, around it to understand it's all about contentment. It's a big difference. Or Jeremiah 29, 11, which is another favourite of many, many people about God having a plan and a purpose for us to prosper us and give us a future. Magnificent. But again, we only have to go a verse either side of that one to understand that this was a promise given to the people of Israel as they approached 70 years in exile, 70 years of the hardest, most awful stuff that they could go through. It was a promise, but it wasn't an immediate promise for them right there and then in their immediate circumstance. We need to understand the literary context into which the Bible is written. So the Bible's a book. I need to get a move on. Secondly, the Bible is an old book, and so therefore we need to read it carefully. It's written into a different culture, a different time in history. We need to be really careful not just to go straight from the then and there of the original context to the here and now of our 21st century life. There's a a bridge to be gapped in there and we need to do some hard work to make sure we understand any story, any part of Scripture in its historical context. But thirdly... And this is good news for us as we grapple with those things. We don't have to do this all alone because thirdly, the Bible is the church's book. It was designed that we actually might read this thing together and make sense of it together. The challenge for us is to read Scripture with others and not just others like ourselves. Read it with different ages and different backgrounds that we might read and understand the Bible together. 
fourth guiding principle is that the Bible is God's book. And this is really important. The Bible is about God before it's about you and me. And so often we approach the Bible thinking that we'll just kind of flick it open and have a read and think, what might this mean for me today? That's often our approach to Scripture. But the main thing about the Bible is who God is, what God has done, what he has promised, what he will do. And it's as we come to know God with that approach that we discover how we're supposed to live in response. The Bible is God's book. It's not primarily about you and me. And at the centre of that book is the person of Jesus. All of the stories, all of the different elements of Scripture that we're going to look at over these next few weeks lead us to the person of Jesus. And so when we're in the Old Testament, we inevitably ask ourselves the question of how does this in some way prepare us to meet Jesus? And then as we get into the New Testament, we ask ourselves the question, how does this passage respond to all that Jesus did and said and promised? It points to Jesus. And lastly, sixth guiding principle, and this is all in the app if you want to look this up at some stage as well, uh, is that the Bible is more than just information. It's an invitation. As we engage with Scripture... It shows us a way of life, a way of being in the world that we're invited into. So therefore, this is not just an intellectual exercise. It's not just a a cognitive exercise that we might be biblically literate. But actually, it invites us into the imagination space. And we ask ourselves the question as we come to any passage in Scripture is, what if, what if this were my story? What if this was something that I was being invited into? What if this is something that I participate in? We read the Bible with our imagination. It's an invitation, not just information. So there's six things that are hopefully guiding principles as we think about how we engage with Scripture. But in the few minutes that I've got left, I want us to think about Old Testament narrative in particular. And there's a few things that we also need to say about Old Testament narrative because it plays an incredibly important role in the biblical story. You can think about it. Like at one level, it plays, it plays this enormous level in Scripture in that it tells us about the redemptive history of the world. It, it tells us that there's the big story of creation and fall and redemption and restoration. And the Old Testament plays a really important part in that universal story of God. At another level, it tells us the story of the nation of Israel, of God's chosen people who were designed by God to be a set-apart people, to be God's chosen ones. It tells their story. And in amongst that universal story and the story of Israel, we get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other little stories. You know, some strange, lots bizarre, some hard to understand, some cute, some disturbing. We get all those other stories that are mixed in to the big story of God. But it is important as we, as we I suppose, approach any of those stories to understand that Old Testament stories are not allegories. They're not stories that are filled with special meaning. And sometimes we, we kind of over-apply special meaning to lots of these stories. They're not allegories. 
They're actually limited in their focus. They're only one part of the story that God is telling of what God is doing in history. And so each individual story also doesn't have a moral of its own. You know, when I grew up in the church and in Sunday school, it seemed that way, that it was like, here's the story, and what's the moral of this story? Well, it's, you know, be courageous or, or do this or do that. Old Testament stories are often not set up that way where, with a moral at the end of the story. They record what happened, not necessarily what should have happened or what ought to happen every time. Does that make sense? Because that's the way the story works, right? Stories aren't always prescriptive to tell us what to do. They're descriptive. They're just telling us what happened. And we are supposed to make sense of that in the light of a bigger story and a bigger context of what the Bible is telling us. And so it's also important to say that in lots of these Old Testament stories, what people do is not necessarily a good example for us. In fact, it's usually the opposite. Most of the characters in the Old Testament that we read about in these stories are far from perfect in their actions and their words. But it is important to say that God is always the hero of these narratives and that these narratives ultimately find their full purpose and meaning in Jesus. So the kind of disclaimer... As we come now, just have a super quick look at one of these stories in the Old Testament, is that we need to be careful not to allegorize or moralize or personalize or decontextualize these stories. But we need to look at them through the lens that we've just been talking about. And so just to give us an example of that this morning, I just want to have a brief look at one of these stories. Now, I'm not going to... And again, a little disclaimer, I'm not going to have a crack at one of these really bizarre, really, really tricky stories this morning because we don't have enough time. We'll be here until dinner time. So I'm going I'm to take a story from 1 Samuel chapter 17, the story of David and Goliath, one of probably the classic kind of Sunday school story, if you like, and have a think about how we look at this story through the lens that I've just been talking about. Because it's a familiar story, but also one that is often been misinterpreted or reinterpreted uh, to put ourselves at the centre of the story. So let's have a look at 1 Samuel 17. Now, the other disclaimer is I'm going to take this as read. Or, actually, no, I'm going to encourage you to go away and read the story in all its fullness this afternoon, this week sometime, in amongst all the other things that you've got to read as well. It's a fascinating story. But it's the kind of story that basically we already know, right? Whether we've been in church five minutes or our whole life, everyone has got basic understanding of David and Goliath. Little David slays big Goliath, Israel win. That's the nuts and bolts of the story. But actually, as you come to have a look at the story again this week, understand this, that the context of what's happening in 1 Samuel 17 is really important. It's not just an isolated battle between little David and big Goliath. There's some really important things that are happening in the background, part of which is about the kingship of Israel. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, the people have had enough of essentially Yahweh being their king. They want a real flesh and blood king, someone that can lead them into battle. And so they turn their back on the idea of Yahweh as king uh, and they choose Saul. A man who was a likely type, uh, an impressive fellow, kind of a head taller than everyone else, it would seem. 
But as we discover in the narratives moving on from 1 Samuel 8 is that Saul makes a bit of a mess of things. And so the chapter before we get to David and Goliath, in 1 Samuel 16, it's David, the most kind of unlikely type, if you like, the one who had to be gone, you know, someone had to go out and get him and bring him in. He's the one that's anointed as the next future king of Israel. So this really important question hovers in the background, this really important contextual question of who will God choose to work through? And another important part of the context is the nation of Israel itself. Because once again, here they are facing an existential threat. This nation that has been chosen by God to carry his story forward a nation that has been promised land and that they would become a great nation and that they would be a blessing to the world around them, they face extinction at the hands this time of the Philistines. So this question is always in the background, is this going to be the end of a promising story? Is this finally the end of Israel? But funnily enough, more often than not, when we approach this story, often the focus is on David himself how David slays the giant with his sling and his stones, throwing off the armour that Saul provides. And the most obvious application is often to think about how we can slay the giants that we face in our own life. By focusing on David as the hero of the story, we end up placing ourselves at the centre of the story and make it all about us and the giants that we face in our life. You know, we might even allegorise the five stones to represent the fruits of the Spirit or five practices that we need to implement in order to overcome the obstacles that stand against our peace and prosperity. I don't know. We can make up some really creative sermons. Uh, You can have some fun with that kind of stuff. But when we do that, we actually end up missing out on something really important. Because this is not primarily a story about David, although he plays a leading role here. This is not a story with a singular moral or some kind of hidden message. This is a story about God. And there's just a few little reflections I want to provide us this morning as we think about this incredible story in 1 Samuel 17. And the first one is this, that even though it looked hopeless, God's plans would not be thwarted. And believe me, it looked hopeless. It could well have been that David was four feet shorter than Goliath. Looks like David and Goliath down here at the moment, doesn't it? <laughs> Has he got a sling and stones? I mean, it's right. <laughs> to be honest, I've never been Goliath in my life, though. That would be a first. But it, it, looked, it looked hopeless. There, there were, like I said, could have been a four-feet difference between David and Goliath. None of the other Israelites wanted to touch the fight with Goliath. They were all too terrified. It looked as though it was going to end very, very badly. It looked like the Goodwood Saints under-12s versus an AFL team. It was that kind of mismatch. But the story reminds us that it wasn't just David v. Goliath. It wasn't Goliath versus Israel. Verse 26 in the story tells us that this was Goliath versus the army of the living God. This was not just about the future of Israel. 
This was about the future of God's plans and purposes. And those plans and purposes would not be thwarted. God is the hero of this story. And Old Testament narratives like this, I think they're, they're littered right throughout Scripture to remind God's people, whether they're living in the ancient Near East or whether they're living in 21st century Australia like us, that despite the way that it looks sometimes, God is still in control. Nothing stands in the way of his plans for the redemption of the world. Nothing. Even when it looks dire, nothing stands in the way of God. And what we will discover as the story goes on is that out of this particular nation we will come the one who will ultimately rescue the world. God's plans will not be thwarted. And I think the second thing that this story tells us really powerfully is that it is faith that saves. It's a story of faith. It is faith that saves. It was his faith in God that enabled David to see the very predicament in a very different way than everyone else. While Saul and the Israelites looked at Goliath and were terrified, David saw his vulnerability. It was his faith-filled reliance on God for victory. That's what this story is about. And it's a salient call to remember that victory is not of ourselves, but it's due to the one in whom we put our faith. And it's a reminder to Israel and to any one of us, including me, in this, that would rely on ourselves, who rely too often on our sheer will and effort to succeed. It's a reminder that also Zechariah gives us that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And funnily enough, it's like a little echo too of what Jesus comes to tell us in John chapter 15 when he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. It's not faith in ourselves, but it's faith in God that truly saves. God's plans won't be thwarted. It's faith that truly saves. This story also tells us, and I love this about this story, is that God uses unexpected people. It wasn't just that David was young or short or just a shepherd. It's also that he was a flawed character whose motives weren't always pure. Now, we're going to find out, if you keep reading, later on in David's life, uh, that this flawed character comes very much to the surface and he's guilty of rape and murder, the worst things you can possibly imagine. But even here, amongst other things, if you go back and read the story, in fact, I read the story again this week and to be honest, I said this to Nate when I was talking to him during the week about this story, I'd never noticed how often David actually asks about the reward that comes from taking down Goliath. I'd miss that. I've read this story for 47 years and missed that part of the story, which again reminded me how carefully we need to read these stories often. But David seems preoccupied with the reward that he's going to get potentially if he takes down David, a reward of wealth, a reward of the king's daughter, a reward of a tax-free life. There were some pretty good incentives. But it's just suffice to say that perhaps David's motives weren't 
particularly pure. And perhaps David isn't just the simple golden boy hero that we read about in the Sunday school stories. But what's great about that in one sense, it's great for any of us that have ever wondered whether God can use us. Can God use me? I don't feel like God's able to use me because I'm not good enough or I've got a checkered background or I'm flawed in some way. It's a reminder to us that God has always worked through flawed people because every single one of us is flawed in some way. And again, it's a reminder that it's not about us because all of us are complex. None of us have pure motives all of the time. It's about God and his remarkable ability to to work through people, his gracious choice to to work in and through us. And that's what Old Testament narrative does. It reminds us time and time again that God chooses to work through the most unlikely people in the most unlikely circumstances. And that's still the way that God works. He still works that way. And so no matter how ill-equipped that you and I might feel, no matter how flawed that we might think we are, God still chooses to establish his kingdom through us. And that is good news, isn't it? That God still uses flawed, complex, imperfect people to accomplish his purposes in the world. Because his plans won't be thwarted. And of course, last but not least, in terms of what I want to talk about this morning, we want to encounter Jesus through this story. And David points us to Jesus. Of course, in the context of Israel's history, David's faithful words and deeds prove him a worthy successor to the throne of Israel. But more than that, David points us to a future anointed one, a future king, Jesus, who will also save Israel in a very unexpected way. David, therefore, kind of acts as a type of Christ who who anticipates the coming of the true Messiah. Because if we fast forward from those battlegrounds there in 1 Samuel 17, if we fast forward a thousand years, we find that the people of Israel are restless again. They're under Roman oppression and they are yearning for a Messiah, a bold, strong, powerful figure who would step forward and free them from the Romans and make them once again the powerful nation they were destined to be. Again, the people of Israel are looking for someone to lead them into battle. But their idea of a likely Messiah was a very different one to the plan that God had in mind. Instead of getting a warrior that they expected, they got a baby, a vulnerable little baby born into the humblest of circumstances, the son of a a carpenter, a man from Nazareth a place that seemingly nothing good came from. They got a man who was rejected in his hometown and ultimately crucified as a criminal. Let's reflect for a second on these words that were written about Jesus or this description of Jesus. By the standards of this world, Jesus achieved very little. He amassed no personal wealth. He was not widely travelled. He was not highly educated. He left no sons to carry on his name. 
His short life was spent in the company of common and in some cases highly undesirable people. He made a dramatic and ambiguous claim regarding his own identity. He was alienated from his own people and then tortured and executed as a young man by the Roman authorities in the fashion after which criminals were normally dispensed with. This, this is God's plan for the rescue of the world. The most unlikely hero, the most unlikely king and messiah stepped into history and through the most unlikely means, a humiliating death on a cross, won a far greater battle than the one that we read about in 1 Samuel 17. This was a victory over sin and death. This was a victory over the powers of the world. This was a God who was proving once and for all that his plan to bring about redemption to the whole of creation could not be thwarted. David and that story out on the battlefield there points us forward a thousand years to the coming of our true king, a king who would rescue the world once and for all, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the whole of the cosmos. And that's where we want to finish this morning. We want to finish coming and recognising our true Messiah, our true King, Jesus, by doing what he asked us to do. And that is when we come together, when we meet together, to remember him. And how do we remember him? Through a little feast with some bread and some wine. As Jesus gathered his disciples, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body. And he took the wine and he said, this is my blood. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this until I come. And so we practice this little feast together to remember Jesus, to remember the great rescue on the cross. But also to point us forward to a time that he will come again and the world will be made new. And as I was thinking about that story of of David and Goliath again this week and the unlikeliness of little David taking down big Goliath, I was, uh, it took me to kind of 1 Corinthians, this idea that you know, the message of the cross is like foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to those who are being saved. God takes the most unlikely people, the most unlikely circumstances, and he does that and he uses that to bring about his kingdom in the world. It made me think about this little feast as well, and anyone that might step into church and have never seen this before and think, wow, this seems like a little foolish thing to do. Eat a tiny bit of bread and a tiny cup of juice. It seems a bit silly in one sense. And yet for us who are being saved, it's recognition of the power of God, isn't it? That through his death on a cross, through the giving up of his body and blood, that you and me and the whole of creation can know what it means to be redeemed. We can know what it means to have a future with God. We can know what it means to look forward to a time when Jesus will come again and make all things new. So I want to invite just the people that are going to come and help this morning with communion. What I'm going to encourage you to do this morning is to come and grab your bit of bread and a little bit of juice. Uh, Go back to your chairs and just as you pray... Thank God for what he's done through Jesus.
thank God that he is gracious enough to want to use you in his plans and purposes. And hang on to that little cup. And we're going to drink that together in a second. Because we want to recognize together as we drink together that God is still in control. God's plans will not be thwarted. And we drink together with anticipation and hope that one day all things will be made new. So I invite you to come forward now and collect the bread and the wine.